Okay, it is 2.45, so we're going to go ahead and move on with the rest of the afternoon's program so we can stay on schedule. Uh, the presentation right now is End of Life Options Act in Hospice Palliative Care. We have Sylvia Elias. Is my saying that right? Alai, yeah. okay, Alai. Sylvia has 14 years of home health and hospice experience in positions ranging from clinical supervisor, infection prevention manager, director of home care, and assistance, assistance director of hospice. She is currently the executive director of home care and hospice of the Valley, a 501c3 nonprofit with which in 2018 cared for nearly 800 patients, either in their own homes or in other facilities throughout the local communities in the Roaring Fork, Colorado, Crystal, and Eager, Eagle River Valleys. Please welcome Sylvia Alai. Well, good afternoon. Uh, happy to see you all here. I'd like to welcome you. It's so beautiful outside, and it was a beautiful drive here. Um, well, I'm going to talk to you today a little bit about hospice and palliative care. I know that there are a lot of confusion out there about what is the difference between hospice and palliative care, and uh, when do we qualify for which one. And so I, I know that most of you are familiar with home health. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions about home health but I think I'd like to jump into hospice and what does hospice offer? So I just wanted to start a little bit about telling you about the background of hospice and where it originated. And really hospice came from 475 AD. That's when it started, long, long time ago. And it really means host and guest. At the moment, I'm doing a palliative fellowship with all of my staff, and I say to them, what does this mean to you, that you're both a host and a guest today? And they all mentioned, well, you know, we're there to guide people and walk with people on their journeys, but we're also guests in their homes. And that is what is the beauty of hospice, is we we meet you at a very uh, critical time of life, and we walk with you a journey, and we become your guest, and we also become one of the friends that guide you through a time uh, that is hard. So in the Middle Ages, it became a hospitia, and that was really much more of a tavern kind of home where people were taken care of, the ill, the sick, the dying. They went there for food and shelter, too. Um, so if we talk about, well, we would really like to have a tavern or a hospitia or a hospice house in our community, it really isn't anything new. It comes from the Middle Ages, long ago. <laughs> this is a really, it's just a quick timeline of how hospice developed. But really what is significant to us in the United States is that um, this lady, Dame Cicely Saunders, she was a doctor in palliative care and hospice, and she came from England and she met with um, some physicians at Yale. And she also met with Florence Wald, who was the dean of the Yale Medical School, and talked about different things and different concepts and the whole concept of hospice. 
And that's really how the whole movement was born in the United States. And these are the three important ladies to us, Dame Cicely Saunders, who was the doctor, Florence Wald, and then Rosemary Johnson Hersler, who started the first hospice with Florence uh, Wald, and then really uh, sat in that hospice as a CEO for, for almost four decades, and took part in the whole writing of the hospice benefit as we know it today through Medicare. Actually, she was my preceptor, a tough lady. <laughs> So this is the Connecticut hospice that was established. And I always find it so interesting that it was established in 71, but they didn't see patients until 74. Isn't that interesting? And then in 79, they established the inpatient hospice um, in Branford, and that's a picture of it, um, with that little statue over there that shows the nurse with a torch, almost like Florence Nightingale, and the family the patient and the family as the unit of care. In 1983, the hospice benefit got established, and that's really important for us because that is how we define hospice in the United States today. And that is also one of, the most, uh, one of our biggest gifts, but also one of our biggest hurdles, and I'll tell you why in a bit. So the whole philosophy of hospice is that we do not prolong life, but we also do not hasten death. I like to say this from a hospice perspective, that we see death as a moment in time, and everything else is about life and quality of life, and how do we enhance that quality of life and make it worthwhile? So as hospice got established, there were these 10 principles, and that is really also the key of what is in the hospice benefit today. It really says that the patient and the family is the unit of care. And what that means is that we can never look at anybody in isolation. We need to look at them in their family, in their community, within their religious group, in their life, in their lifestyle. The hospice is also physician-directed. Well, what does that mean? That really means that we work under the direction of a doctor. We need a doctor's order to say that someone qualifies for hospice. And we usually work with, with the person's attending physician. They make the referral to hospice. And then on hospice, we also have a medical director that serves as a consulting physician to help with symptom management. When we look at a patient, we look at the entire person. We look at the, the physical, the psychosocial, and the spiritual. And that is why hospice is presented or given to people through a whole interdisciplinary team. We are all equals in, those, in that team. The physician, the nurse, the chaplain, the uh, social worker, all of us get together and we discuss with the patient and the family what, what are your goals? What do you want life to be like while you still have it left? We're also available 24-7, which means that 
Um, if something happens during the middle of the night or there is a crisis, the nurse can be contacted and will go out and see the patient in the community or wherever they reside. Uh, a very important component of hospice is grief and bereavement. Now, it's interesting when I spoke with the nurses, I have a lot of very young nurses in our team right now. And I say to them, when we talk about grief and bereavement, who are we really talking about? Well, they think about the family. We all think about the family is the person who's going to miss us the most. So then I asked them the question. I said, well, how old are you going to get one day? And you get the most interesting questions because I had a nurse that's no older than 27. And she said, well, I'm going to get really old. I said, well, what is that? She said, I'm going to be 75. And then I had another person that said, well, uh, you know, I'm going to be 100. I, my family, uh, most of the people in my family are 100. That is my number. But no one said to me, well, I'm going to die tomorrow. Right? Because we don't think that way. We don't want to think that way. But when we go to a physician or when we have a diagnosis and someone says to you, well, you only have two weeks or three weeks or six months or a year, it comes as a big shock. Would you agree with me when I say that? You don't expect it. No matter how old or how healthy or how sick you are, you don't want to hear it. Well, often that is the message that the hospice needs to bring. Well, we're here to support you through your end of life. That's a hard message. Um, so if we think of grief, who is grieving? Well, maybe it's the patient. Maybe it's that person that got the message that is grieving. Because what do they say goodbye to? Everything. Everything they love. The birds, the nature their family, their friends, their dog, the cat, whatever is important to them. So when we talk about hospice services and grief and bereavement, we also talk about walking with the patient, with a person that is dying, and giving them the opportunity to reflect on what they are losing. It's interesting, you know, a lot of people say, well, we go in the home and they say, just don't tell dad we're signing them on, up on hospice. And then I speak with dad, and da dad says to me, just don't tell my daughter I'm not doing well. Well, that causes a bit of a trouble or problems because there's a lot of important conversations that could happen if people just say, well, look, I'm not doing as well. Let's talk about what's important or let's settle some things, or let's talk about what my wishes are. And it's really important to do that. Um, and then hospice is, in, in, is, is uh, uh, presented or done in any setting. It could be in a hospital, it could be at home, it could be in a nursing home, an assisted living. Wherever the person resides, we can provide that hospice care. Um, I always tease them and say, you know, I've been... I've been in hospice now for 15 years, but I've been a nurse for a much longer time. And uh, 
I say, you know, well, I've done hospice in the bar and I've done it in the park, and that's just as good. It works just as well. Um, and then really important in the hospice program is for us also to take care of our caregivers because they also go through loss and bereavement as they attach, get attached to people and they want, they become part of the families, they become part of the caregivers and then they experience loss too, to really support our own staff as they go through um, the whole process. So really, the most important thing for me when we talk about end of life is self-determination. Now, if I asked you what does self-determination mean to you, I'm sure I'm going to get different answers. But it really means that we can make our decisions until we can no longer make them. And that we can say yes and no to certain things. And that we have the right to say yes and no to certain things. Um, it's interesting, my father just recently had to make a big decision whether he was going to come and live with me. And so I'm the youngest in the family, and uh, my brother calls me and he says, well, you know, you need to speak with dad. And then my sister calls me and says, well, dad will listen to you. You need to speak with dad. Well, I called dad, and what did I say to dad? I didn't say, dad, you have to come live with me. This is the decision, and we're all in on the same page. I say, dad, it's your decision. You're capable. You can think. You can make your own decisions. There's no reason for me to decide what is good for you. But these are the options. And you pick what is the right thing for you. And I think that's the real important thing about self-determination um, and end-of-life choices. Think about what is good for you. I have this one story that um, I, I, I started off in hospice, and I told you I had the tough lady. And I've been a nurse for 17 years. I worked in acute case settings. I've seen it all. I've done it all. So I walk in, and she says, well, you're a baby. I said, well, I've been a nurse for 17 years. She says, well, you know nothing about hospice. I'm thinking, what is she talking about? What is she talking about? So I walk onto the floor, and my first patient is a hospice patient. And the son brings in his mother. And she is really contracted, and he puts her in the bed, and he says, I have been the caregiver of my mother my entire life. And he says, my mother loves chocolate, and the last thing I want her to taste in her life is chocolate. Well, mom is a diabetic, and mom has all of these other things going on as well. So the doctor walks in, the hospice physician, and she writes the order, chocolate. Well, at that point, I knew I knew nothing about hospice <laughs> or nursing or end of life because it's self-determination. It is what does that person want and what is important for them and their family when they make these decisions. I'm going to really go through this real quick about palliative care. Um, so this was the gentleman that started... He was a patient, and he said to Cicely Saunders, I want to be a window in your home. And this is what triggered all of the science. Isn't that an interesting thing that brought it home? And she said, well, this is my legacy. This is what I'm going to do. 
And this is how she started all of the palliative care, scientific research that went into all of, all of it. And so this gentleman was the first one um, that really defined it the way we know it today. And then there are bunches of different um, definitions about what palliative care is. It's the WHO has one. Uh, we have the National Consensus Project, uh, NHPCO, which is the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. But there are some commonalities in palliative care, and that is really in the eight domains. And if we look at the eight domains of palliative care, well, it looks a lot like hospice. <laughs> it's all there, same stuff. Except that they talk about the science and the treatment. So palliative care includes all kinds of, an acute, all kinds of acute treatments that hospice does not include. So this is just, again, a run-through. And the important things for me on these slides as we go through the timelines is um, in 1992, if you look at the hospice side, 95% of people died in uncontrolled pain. And that is how this whole movement, the uh, physician-assisted suicide movement, started in 1992 because people were afraid of dying in pain. Well, if you look on the other side of palliative care in 2001, the Joint Commission then included in all of the different settings, as you know it today, in the nursing home, in the hospital, and whether it's a baby we're assessing or, or someone older or us, they ask us questions about pain because we don't want to suffer in pain. And so that was really written into all of our case settings to make sure people don't have pain. Now, what is pain? If we think of pain and symptom management, do we think of physical pain? Well, I can tell you that it's, it's pain is much bigger than physical pain. It is emotional. It is social. It is every aspect of our lives is touched by it. So when I had the group of my palliative fellows, I said to them, and I have interdisciplinary people there, social workers and nurses' aides, and, and I said to them, what, what does pain mean to you? And the aide said to me, well, if my patient is in pain, I can't, them, can't get them out of bed. Well, is that quality of life? No. The social worker said to me, well, I find that if someone has pain that they don't want to engage or they don't want to meet with a family or they don't want to go out for dinner or don't feel like eating, that is why pain control is so important in hospice. It's not just physical pain, it is total pain and quality of life. When I talk to hospice nurses, I said, well, what do we do? Do we give someone a little bit of morphine to take away the pain? Or is pain more than that? So when I assess someone, I say, well, where is the pain? Well, if the pain may not be a cancer pain. The pa cancer pain might be taken care of but it might be arthritis. So if I'm someone, and I am someone, who likes to build puzzles and maybe crochet, and I can't do that, I don't have quality of life. That is what I like doing. So if I can assure that someone can do what they like doing, even if it's a half an hour and it's, it's addressing the arthritis, that is quality of life. 
So quality of life is different for everyone. And that is what we want to focus on. I had a, I have this, I'm full of stories and I got to stop stories because I never stop with my <laughs> with telling these things. But I, I remember um, one of my nurses calling me from a patient's home and she said, Sylvia, who's the patient? She said, there's a gentleman working in the garden and there's a gentleman cooking food in the kitchen and who's my hospice patient? Well, it was the gentleman working in the garden. Well, that's what we want. We want to keep him working in the garden, right? That is quality of life. So the differences between hospice and palliative care, really the philosophy is very the same, um, except that palliative care includes treatments and active treatments, and hospice is more comfort measures towards the end of life. The eligibility, well, this is the big question. This is where I told you we're going to talk about the hospice benefit, the good and the bad about it. Now, when the hospice benefit was written through Medicare, it's a wonderful benefit. It includes all of these things. It gives you, it includes the medications related to the, to the disease. It includes all of the uh, equipment needed. Um, it includes all of this. But the one thing they put in this rule through Medicare is a six-month or less prognosis. Now, remember what I told you, none of us want to hear that. So people don't access it because they're afraid when they hear, well, it's six months or less. Well, really what that says is that you have a progressive disease that is, in the opinion of a physician, could progress in a six-month period that would lead to, to a death. Well, we know that we have hospice patients on for three or four years because the disease continues to progress and we don't really know. We can't know. But so many people don't even access their benefit, this wonderful benefit that includes such a lot of services, people that can come to your home, people that can assist you and, and help you uh, connect with the community and, and do all kinds of things with you. People don't access it because they are so afraid of the six months. And so there is really no limit because when you come onto the benefit and you are, have a terminal progressive disease, then we can recertify you as long as that disease is progressing. We get people who actually qualify from hospice and improve so much that we have to discharge them. And that happens. And that's okay because they can come back at any point. But a lot of people deny themselves the treatment because they're so afraid of this thing written into the rule. Palliative care is right under Medicare. So it's right under the home care benefit. And in home care, there are two things that we have to have to qualify for Medicare. And that is you have to be homebound or confined to the house, which means it takes a lot of effort to get out of the house to uh, do anything. Um, and there's got to be a skilled need. So you either need physical therapy or a nurse or someone to work on some kind of a, a clinical skill to improve. In hospice, that's not a requirement. 
the only requirement is a progressive disease. Um, and, and so you do not have to be homebound, you can still drive, you can still do anything uh, you would have done otherwise. Location, pretty much we can do it everything everywhere. From a home care perspective, we can only do palliative care in the community. Um, palliative care in the hospital and the nursing homes are usually done by nursing home or hospital palliative teams. And again, um, all therapies are included, life prolonging therapies, chemotherapy, all of those things are included as it would be included in Medicare under palliative care. And in hospice, we really look at quality of life. We don't look at the invasive therapies because they often cause side effects. That is not quality of life. And... Um, so sometimes, you know, I get a call from someone that says someone is going, uh, someone has a progressive cancer and they're going into, they want to have more CAT scans or more MRIs. And my question is when someone is on hospice is how is it going to change the treatment? Is it going to help? Is it going to change how we treat the person? Um, you know, is, is it, and if it's not, then do we really need it? And that's the big question when it comes to pursuing treatments. Is that treatment really going to help us? Um, and what if we have that diagnosis, what are we going to do with it once we have it? So issues I've kind of touched on the six months. Palliative care, the issue I have, the, the biggest issue we see is that people are on a palliative program and they don't want to move over to the hospice program because they're still holding on to active treatments like um, ongoing chemotherapies. And those therapies might just make them sicker, um, whereas once you stop it, they actually have a longer period where there is quality of life. And so those are some of the choices uh, people make. Of course, both programs have the entire interdisciplinary team to assist. Big thing in hospice is the fear of using narcotics or morphine. I know that the M word is a lot of times, you know, what is that? Are you going to bring the M into the house, the morphine? Well, morphine um, is one of those drugs that's really a pure drug. If it's used, and we use it in minute, absolute minute dosages, and it comes out of the system almost immediately. So when we do use it to just take the edge off someone that has either shortness of breath or pain, it is a little drop that we give under the tongue, and it usually helps immediately, and it gives them good quality for a period of time. Um, when someone is using that, we, we're really not concerned about addiction. Addiction is not an issue for us because it is quality. And if someone builds a bit of a tolerance and they need a little more, it doesn't matter as long as someone is comfortable and they have quality of life. So hospice facts and figures, there are phenomenal facts and figures. And this is just a resource for you. You can really go and look at this, this is the NHPCO facts and figures. Please go on there and look at it and see how many people or how little people actually access their benefit in the United States. 
and how many more people we could potentially help and um, assist in hospice care. This is a great book to read if you've not read it, Being Mortal. And it tells you really about palliative care and, and the hard decisions that go into this. There's actually a YouTube video on this as well. And so if you haven't read this, please take note and, and take time to read it because it's, it's a very interesting reading. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the um, Colorado End of Life Option Act or Medical Aid in Dying. Um, and so this was the ballot, and it was voted in and, and came in play in, in 2016. And there are some components that, that to be able to qualify for this, um, someone has to meet. Um, the one thing is mentally capable. So someone has to be able, if they want to choose to pursue medical aid in dying, they have to be able to communicate clearly and, and make an informed consent. Um, and if that person isn't able to do that, then they need to go for a psychiatric evaluation. The second thing is uh, it's got to be someone who's 18 or older and, um, and of course, demonstrate a Colorado residency. So a lot of people uh, come here and they think um, they have second or, or third residences here, um, but they actually need to have documentation of being a resident in Colorado to pursue this. Um, that person also needs to have a prognosis of six months or less, um, confirmed by a doctor. And it's if someone just has a progressive disease, but there isn't actually a prognosis put to it, they don't qualify. Uh, the doctor has to be the attending physician, and there's got to be a consulting. So two doctors need to see the patient, confirm the diagnosis, confirm that someone is capable um, to make that decision voluntarily, um, and then do the paperwork for it. Um, and of course, uh, they are protected by the law. The, the key thing is um, that the medications that that physician prescribes has to be self-administered. So um, the doctor also has to explain to the person uh, that they are what the options of care and treatment are. And um, of course, in, in hospice again, when it comes to this, we will talk about comfort measures, um, mitigating pain, symptom management, um, and all of the options uh, that there is for treatment um, uh, as an alternative to making this decision. Uh, they also have to talk about the risks associated when people take the medications because it's not that they take it and it's, it's, it's over. It can take longer. It can take uh, shorter. Uh, there's, there's a whole list of, of things that they have to follow when they do that. So um, 
so they have to so the physician needs to discuss that risk with the patient before uh, administering or prescribing the medications and it has to be a voluntary decision um, and there has to be two witnesses that sign to uh, say that that uh, the person um, voluntarily made that decision um, Health facilities, I know that I've encountered this a few times where health facilities um, are federally uh, run and so they do not allow any of this because it's a state law. And so in some of those facilities it will not, they won't have a physician um, available and they uh, certainly uh, cannot, you cannot pursue any of it there. Um, of course these things are illegal. So what do we do in hospice? Um, of course, we reaffirm that to us death is a natural process and we don't hasten or postpone it. So really, the opinion of hospice in all of this act is that we're very neutral. Um, we acknowledge the legal part of the, we, we acknowledge the law, we acknowledge wishes and rights of patients um, and we will never abandon a patient. So if someone comes to us um, with, with the prescriptions and that is their end of life wishes, we won't abandon the patient or the family um, and we will stay involved with them uh, throughout the process. Uh, we will, however, discuss all of the end of life options with them and decisions. Um, and of course, we will then pronounce the death and support the family through the grief process. Hospice cannot provide or give guidance. We do not, our physician will not order the medications. It has to go through an attending doctor and a consulting physicians. We do not facilitate any of this. We do not call the doctor on behalf of the patient. Um, and if any of our staff or volunteers have issues with, with being in the home when this is uh, happening, we don't, we allow them not to be present. Uh, when a patient pursues this, they have to self-administer it. Hospice may not be in the room while this is happening. Um, and we will only enter after um, the medication has been taken. And then we will support the patient through whatever symptoms may arise. Um, and, of course, the family. So encounters about this, a, a couple of cases that I can discuss with you that we've, that we've had... Um, I had a gentleman who was a professor at a university and fairly um, adamant that that was what he wanted. He met with a hospice team and we were able to talk to him about all of the fears and the reasons for why he felt that he wanted to pursue medical aid in dying. Um, one of the things that he told us was that he was really afraid of dying in pain and as we know that is... Uh, one of the biggest fear people might have or that they may lose dignity or that they may not be with it um, at the time of when, when they start changing. Um, this gentleman, we assured him as a hospice team, we will be there, we will manage the symptoms, we'll manage the pain. Um, and in fact, he never pursued it. He actually improved so much with all of the hospice medications that we were able to give him that he was discharged 
from hospice. A month later, his wife was diagnosed with cancer, and he became the primary caregiver of his wife. So that's one of the stories I have to tell you. Another one was one that just happened a couple of weeks ago, where someone was had all of the medications ready, um, the team got involved. It was extremely stressful for this particular woman because the family couldn't decide on the date. It didn't fall on the right religious day, it didn't fall on the right this day, and, and the stress that, that this woman went through discerning what will be the date. So, that is why it's so important for me to talk about self-determination. So we got really got involved with the patient and said, you know, the family does not need to decide what your day is or your date is. You can, you can have it happen naturally. She did, however, determine the date, but was allowed to let go and, and let nature run its course. And three days before the date, she died of natural causes. So she never pursued it. I had another example um, of a patient that came on with us. Um, and they were really afraid of using morphine, like we've seen in, in so many cases. And I actually spoke with the wife and the husband. They were a wonderful couple, a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful couple. And really just walked them through one drop at a time. And this man had good quality of life and never pursued it because he didn't need to. And all the fears were taken care of. So we, we, we're there. We can, we can support the family. We can support you. Um, I like to think of We'd like to assist, assist people to live their life to the fullest and make sure that they're comfortable uh, to the best of our ability uh, through our teams um, so that this step is not necessary. But we certainly um, appreciate the law and appreciate the rights of every individual and um, the self-determination of, of people making those decisions. So all of that said, um, it's a kind of serious thing to end on. <laughs> questions or any questions for me uh, on any of these components? I have a question. Yes. Is there another way to alleviate pain other than using an opiate? Absolutely, absolutely. So. Remember when I talked about the science of palliation of symptoms? So when we look at symptom management or pain, we can look at adjuvant medicines. So it's not always the opioid. There are so many other modalities that we can combine to alleviate pain or any kind of symptoms. Also natural, also music also guided imagery. They're all covered. And that's why we do it through an inter interdisciplinary team. We also have the volunteers. The volunteers are such an integral part of our um, whole program. And so, you know, if we talk about animals, 
animal therapy, um, comfort creatures, I call them comfort creatures. <laughs> you know, there are so many ways, and, and I, love, I love your question, because when I interview nurses, and I see that I get them young, I always say to them, well, if someone is in a pain crisis, what are you going to do? And what I want to hear is everything before the medication. I'm going to make them comfortable. I'm going to see if they need... You know, if, if you fall asleep at night, and you, me, I'm often so tired, I go to bed at 12 or 1 at night, and I fall asleep, and my ear is so sore. You know, I wake up and I have this really sore ear because I never moved. Well, if you're in a bed and you're lying on one side all the time, something as much as just moving can take away the pain. So really, what is causing the pain? That is the question. And how do we get rid of that before we even go to the medication? And another thing is, a lot of people don't even use medications. I think of my dad, he's on two meds, he's using less than me, he's 81. <laughs> and if he was my patient, I would never give him an opioid. I would maybe give him a Tylenol, and that's going to do the exact same thing, right? You don't start with something like an opioid. You start with Tylenol. <laughs> so I think that's really important. So thank you for that question. That's a great question. Any other questions? Thank you so much, Sylvia. This is such important information, and I personally know uh, the experience of working with a hospice team, and I will say it was one of the greatest gifts of, of my life, my sister's lives, and, and my father's life. So I, I, the work you do is so invaluable. It means so much to families. And thank you very much for your presentation. Well, thank you.